This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. Value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Emerging market equities have had a pretty good time of it recently, and we want to find out why and what the prospects are for the rest of this year and indeed beyond. On the telephone now with me is Archie Hart, who runs the four-factor emerging market equity strategy for Investec Asset Management. It really did look as though, to me, Archie, particularly from a South African perspective and other emerging market perspective, that when October came along, we were going to have a pretty bad time of it. But things have turned around quite nicely. Yes. I mean, uh, as you know, 2018 was a a very poor year in all capital markets, essentially. The only asset class which showed a positive return, I think, was cash. Um, But developed market equities are down 10%, emerging equities are down 15%, and, and actually half of that fall in emerging equities happened in the fourth quarter. So we saw quite a lot of disruption and volatility in, in the fourth quarter, most volatile quarter in in three years. So I think it, it's obviously positive to see some signs of uh, recovery in January. But also I think the fourth quarter might have sown some, some positive seeds for the future as well, which sounds a, a strange thing to say, but that's sort of how I interpret it. What has caused the turnaround? I think after what happened with the US Federal Reserve last night, that's where we must start because suddenly there doesn't seem to be two or three interest rate hikes in the United States emerging for 2019 and therefore that has all sorts of implications for emerging market assets. Well, I think that's right. So if you look at the reason for weakness across asset classes generally last year, I think there were broadly three, the Fed and its hiking cycle, China and worries about growth there and then trade generally, but particularly between China and the U.S. As to the Fed, you're right. Uh, the Fed has certainly paused its interest rate rises going forward. And I think really what's happening here is the Fed is operating in this pre-global financial crisis paradigm where you tweak rates that calibrates economic activity and inflation, and that's how the central banking model worked for for 50 years. The trouble with that is, in a post-global financial crisis world, that no longer works. And and why is that? Well, that's because debt has gone up from $160 pre-GFC to $250 now, so up 50%. In a world where debt is that enormous, the world becomes very sensitive to small changes in interest rates. And I think that's what we saw in 2018. I think the Fed was quite shocked, but they've now decided to, to stand pat while they're trying to understand what's going on. I think it's also interesting that the markets moved on and said, okay, interest rate rises are one thing, but the other thing the Fed did was reduce the size of its balance sheet by $500 billion last year, which is quite a big sucking sound of liquidity out of global markets. The Fed would argue, well, that was only 10% of our balance sheet. But if you look in a pre-GFC world, that would be sort of half of their balance sheet. So in the real world, $500 billion is, is actually quite a lot of money. And I think what we might see as we get later on into the year is the Fed saying, well, perhaps we need to think about how rapidly we shrink our balance sheet because that's clearly causing turbulence as well. 
the Chinese economy is the second thing that you flag here. And you say, why has the Chinese economy been slowing in 2018? And it really has started to accelerate to the downside, although still positive, of course. And you say it's because the government made a mistake. What do you mean? So in mid-2016, the Chinese government became alarmed about the increase and accelerating increase in debt in their economy. Data got to term in 50% of GDP, and the government became more concerned about the implications for economic, financial, and latterly social stability with those accelerating and uncontrolled levels of debt. So since mid-16, the Chinese government has been aggressively moving to control debt. So closing down three-quarters of the peer-to-peer lending industry, shutting down some of the more egregiously managed, highly indebted companies like Ambang, for example, really regulating the banking sector much more effectively and taking out shadow finance. The issue with that, though, is that it began to impact the real economy. It started to squeeze growth out of the real economy. And it's only really latterly in the fourth quarter of last year that the Chinese government woke up to its major policy error. So, so what we're seeing is for the last two or three months, a Chinese government which is not exactly reversing course, but changing emphasis, saying we need to stimulate more now. So a $100 billion program of investing in 7,000 kilometers more of railways, more city mass transit lines, $100 billion injected into the bank system, etc. So that pivot towards more stimulus and away from a, a mistakenly too contractionary policy, I think is, again, a positive seed sown in the fourth quarter. I think it's very positive as well that they've managed to recognise the mistake and correct it. I mean, it's a big economy and it's not going to be overnight, but certainly sentiment-wise, the market did embrace that. I wonder if they'll be embracing a resolution of the trade war between the United States and China. I know that as we record this, they're probably sitting down and starting their latest round of trade talks. I think it's day two. And I also think that President Trump is going to be meeting the Vice Premier of China at some stage in Washington over the next 24 hours. Are you hopeful that these talks can come to fruition, satisfactorily, that is? Well, of course, this is the $64 billion question, I suppose. What I would say is if you you disaggregate the issues in those trade talks, and there are many, there are perhaps sort of four main issues. One is the dollar trade balance. And I think there, that, that's an easy one. China's say happy to buy a few more Boeings and a few more ships full of soybeans. And that is something that they can agree to sort of massage down. Um, I think foreign investment is another issue and, and foreign investment restrictions into China. And again, China, I think, is realizing that, that it's operated a very highly restrictive policy on foreign investment. And you're now seeing relaxation there. So, for example... BMW is the first car company to be able to majority own its car manufacturing plants in China. Tesla's broken ground on a 100% owned electric car plant proposed in China. AXA has been the first company to get a 100% owned foreign insurance license. And I think they are prepared to write in much more open foreign investment rules than previously. Uh, The the U.S. government wants better IP protection in China. Strangely, that's something the Chinese are probably more open to than in the past as well. And the reason for that is simply that they want to upgrade their economy into a more knowledge-intensive, technology-intensive, brand-intensive economy. 
therefore actually greater IP protection really puts them in a, in a good place for where they want to go with their economy as well. However, the remaining major issue is China's industrial policy. So China has a plan for everything. They have a, a Made in China 2025 plan, which has targets and detailed plans to grow robotics, artificial intelligence, big data, cloud, electric cars, etc. Now, if you're Chinese, you think this is a perfectly natural thing that the government has plans to develop all these things. It's what China's already always done, if you like. For the U.S., you look at this as major government plan to take over these great new growth industries, and you're very concerned about that state-directed planning because obviously in America you have complete laissez-faire. So part of the difference here is just different economic systems and mutual incomprehension. And I think China is very unlikely to give up control of its major industrial policy to the U.S., so the U.S. won't get 100% of what it wants there, but perhaps there might be some compromise around that, that the state support for some of these schemes is at least sort of watered down. And if we look at the experience of the U.S. administration, they have drawn lines in the sand time and again. So for example, NAFTA was going to be cancelled. In fact, NAFTA was rolled over into a new agreement. North Korea, in fact, there's been negotiations and uh, an agreement signed. And again, with the government shutdown, for example, was something where the U.S. government pushed things to the brink and then walked back over a few weeks. So I think the trade negotiations are very tough to call, but I certainly think uh, the possibility of a deal is significant. Well, the fact that they're sitting around the table is a start as well. And I do like your phrase, mutual incomprehension. Hopefully they will comprehend each other a little bit better in the future. Let's put all this together, if we can, Archie, and please share with us your positioning for 2019. As I said, I think for the markets to be very good in 2019, we need three things to happen. One is the Fed to remain in, in waiting mode. The second is the stimulus in China to start to impact growth there. And the third would be a China-US trade deal. Now, the positive thing is we don't need all three of those things to happen for it to be a better year. And the reason I say that simply is that the markets have been pretty beaten up already. So if, if I look at examples, nearly a third of the companies in Asia currently trade below their own book values. That has never been worse apart from the global financial crisis. Equally, earnings revisions have never been more negative in emerging markets apart from the global financial crisis. So really, the market is already discounting quite a lot of bad news. So I think if we get one or two out of those three positives, that should lead to a better market environment. But as, as yet, we have to wait and see whether we, how many of those three we see come through. So, so we remain broadly positive on emerging market equities. And again, that's because perceptions we think are relatively downbeat, expectations are relatively low, valuations are pretty cheap. We have a, a portfolio 
which is on under 10 times earnings. And again, so we think we have a, a bunch of very high quality companies which are very cheap and well positioned for any rebound if it eventuates. Can I clarify then, your geographic favourites, you are very much led by valuations, as you say, around about a third of Asian stocks are now trade at a discount to their book value. That's what you're looking for, not the fact that it's in a region that you happen to like. We are very bottom up, so we're just looking for the 70 or 80 best companies we can find in emerging markets. And at the moment, we're, we're spoiled for choice in terms of valuation. Many of our companies are telling us that operationally it's tougher than it was a year or two ago, but growth can, continues. And I think if we look at um, perhaps China, for example, some of the companies we speak to in China are actually still looking very much at double-digit growth. So, for example, Apple is saying they're quite pessimistic on the smartphone market in China. Maybe that's because their market share in China has gone from 14% to 7% over the last three years. So some of the foreign companies that are struggling in China are frankly being outcompeted by the local companies in a difficult environment. So, so we certainly think there are selectively still interesting companies performing well within a difficult backdrop. Archie, thanks so much for your insight. That's Archie Hart, who runs the four-factor emerging market equity strategy for Investec Asset Management, speaking to us from London. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.